Open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 46. We're going to be in chapters 46 and 47 today. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, you're welcome to grab one from our uh, bookshelf over there. And if you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to keep that as your own. We want people to have these in front of them. We want you to be able to get into them. Uh, And so we like to look down at them together so that you can find this and and go back through it um, and, and even test what I'm saying according to what Scripture is saying, uh, and and be encouraged that way. And so uh, if you have one of our Bibles, it's on page 41. We're going to look at chapters 46 and 47. This is another transition section in Genesis that will lead us then into the final few chapters of the book. We only have three chapters left after this. We're almost done, okay? Now, whether you're encouraged or discouraged with the things that are going on in your life right now, my prayer is that our passage today will help us all better understand how to walk through this life with true enduring confidence, okay? And so this is God's word. Um, I've been charged to handle it, and uh, I need help to do that, and so I want to pray and ask God to help me do that, and then we'll, we'll dig in together. So let's pray. Father, I pray that you would let your word go forth clearly, uh, truthfully, Lord, that you would close my mouth where I'm tempted to add anything or subtract anything from it, and that we together would let your word speak to our heart as we submit to your spirit and be transformed into Christ-likeness together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Christians should be the most fulfilled people on the planet. We should be the most fulfilled people on the planet. Jesus himself said that he came so that we might have life and have it in abundance. Now, some would take that to mean that in this life, this earthly life that we live, that we should be healthy, wealthy, and happy. That nothing should go wrong for us. We we should have the best things. We should feel the greatest. But that's a false gospel. That's not the truth. That's not what Scripture actually teaches us. What it actually means, what Jesus said, is that we can live through the hardships of this life, which he guaranteed that we will have. We can live through those hardships with great confidence, with great joy, with great peace, with great satisfaction, because we've already been given everything that we need in Jesus. We've already been given everything that we need in Jesus. And he's promised us that this life, ooh, praise God, is not the final one. It is not our home. We are strangers here. Now, I think if you're a believer in here, along with me, you would say that you believe all of God's promises. But I think we might all also admit, if we were truly honest, that Sometimes we live as if we expect some of them to never come true because we treat this life like it's more permanent than it really is. And there's no way some of these promises that God has made us could ever actually come true in this life. But here's hopefully, Lord willing, what we will see in our passage this morning. To live as God's covenant people means that we live in confidence that God will fulfill all of his promises from the first one to the last one, regardless of how many we see fulfilled in our lifetime. To live as God's covenant people means that we live in the confidence, the expectation, the hope, not wishful thinking, but, but absolute 
confidence that God will fulfill all of his promises from the first one to the last one, regardless of how many we see fulfilled in our lifetime. So let's begin this morning in chapter 46, verse 1. Israel set out with all that he had come that he had and came to Beersheba, and he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. That night God spoke to Israel in a vision, Jacob, Jacob, he said. And Jacob replied, Here I am. God said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you back. Joseph will close your eyes. When you die, Jacob left Beersheba. The sons of Israel took their father Jacob in the wagons Pharaoh had sent to carry him, along with their dependents and their wives. They also took their cattle and possessions that they had acquired in the land of Canaan. Then Jacob and all his offspring with him came to Egypt, his sons and grandsons, his daughters and granddaughters, indeed, all his offspring he brought with him to Egypt. Now, it doesn't say it outright here, but Jacob was in a, in a bit of a dilemma at this point. Okay, If you were here last week and you remember the, what we talked about in the last chapters, he had just been told that Joseph was still alive, even though Jacob had assumed that, that Joseph had been dead for 22 years. And not only was Joseph alive, but he's also the number two man in all of Egypt, and he's in charge of all the food, which meant that he could keep Jacob and his family alive during this severe famine that was continuing, right? We we're only a couple years into it. All of that sounds good, right? There's no dilemma there. So what is the dilemma that Joseph or uh, Jacob is facing? He would have to leave the promised land and go move to Egypt where the food was. Now, for us, to move closer to family might seem like a no-brainer. It might, might be like, oh, yeah, like take that opportunity, right, if you have it, to be closer to family because we consider family more important than the place that we call home. But we've been reading through Genesis enough, uh, long enough to know that leaving the promised land is never a good thing in the book of Genesis. It's not a good thing for God's covenant people. Now, I imagine, though, that when the original Israelite audience heard this part and they realized that Jacob would have to leave Canaan and move to Egypt, they would have immediately understood this dilemma, which is probably why it's not spelled out for us. Because in their covenant with God, both offspring and land were equally important. And even though Egypt was a place of refuge and abundance for Jacob and his family because of Joseph, this original Israelite audience would have a less than favorable view of the land that Jacob was heading to. This, this audience was the generation of Israelites whose parents were the ones that God rescued from slavery in Egypt. This is the Exodus generation. They were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years and God brought them out with a great deliverance. They would have made some connections in this story that Jacob may not have fully grasped. Think back with me for a minute to Genesis 15, when God sealed his covenant with Abraham by, by sending a smoking fire pot and a, and a flaming torch through the middle of some animals that they had cut in half. They were cutting a covenant. Just before God passed between the animals, he put Abraham in this deep sleep and this ominous darkness came all over him. Great terror came, descended on Abraham, and the Lord said to him, 
Know this for certain. Your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation that they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions. Now, chances are that Jacob knew about this exchange between God and Abraham because as the covenant was passed down, the the father would pass down these stories to the son about God's faithfulness and what God had done and how they had experienced that in their lifetime. So Jacob probably knew about this. But God didn't tell Abraham specifically that the nation that would enslave and oppress his people was going to be Egypt. But maybe Jacob was beginning to put two and two together, maybe. But regardless of whether or not Jacob had it figured out, this connection would not have been lost on the original audience of Genesis, nor on, their, on its author, Moses. And they would have immediately felt this angst about the situation. Hold on. Jacob has to go to Egypt. He has to leave the promised land. He has to take everyone with him. And they have to go to Egypt. But in that, they would have also been hopeful because they're on the other side of Egypt. They've come out, right? God had promised Abraham that in the fourth generation, his people would return to the land of Canaan, and they were the generation that he was talking about. These people, this original audience, they were on the precipice of the promised land, preparing to enter it. And so as they were hearing this story recounted, they wouldn't be just hearing the details that led them to where they were, but they would ultimately be hearing the details about all the ways that God had been faithful to his people to bring them to that point. This is not just a a story about their family. This is an account of God's faithfulness. Now, we've been paying attention as, as we've been going through Genesis together, so let's, let's link a couple more things together here quickly before we move on. There are three major famines in the book of Genesis. Three famines. Abraham went through one, Isaac went through one, and Jacob now is going through one. It's not a coincidence that each of the patriarchs faced a time of famine. Each of them went through a time when no matter how hard they worked the ground, it produced more thorns and thistles than it did food. Remember when God cursed the ground because of Adam's sinful rebellion in the garden? The famines are a reminder to us that the patriarchs are not exempt from this curse because they were sinful men too. It also reminds us that none of them are the promised serpent crusher from Genesis 3.15 because none of them could reverse the curse. They all struggled through the famine. None of them could get rid of it. When the famine hit for Abraham in chapter 12, he went down to Egypt without God's approval And we know how that went, right? He lied about his wife, Sarah, said she was his sister. God ended up striking Pharaoh with, and his household with severe plagues because they brought Sarah into his household, presumably as one of his wives. And and in the end, Pharaoh kicked Abraham out and his family back out of Egypt, and they had to go back to the promised land. They had to go back to Canaan. Then when the famine hit for Isaac, God specifically forbid him to go down to Egypt. Don't go there. Stay in Canaan. Stay in Gerar, in the land of Canaan. And God promised to be with him and to bless him with the same covenant promises that he made to Abraham. For both Jacob's father and his grandfather, Egypt was a no-go. Abraham should never have gone, and God 
told Isaac ahead of time, do not go. But now that Jacob was experiencing the famine, Jacob got a green light to go. What is happening here? Sometimes when God says no to us, while he says yes to others, and sometimes God says yes to us while he says no to others, God's specific plan for the individual is always dependent upon his greater plan of redemption. God's specific plan for individual people is always dependent upon his greater plan of redemption. If we try to figure out what God is doing based on the yeses and nos that he's giving to everybody else, then we're going to go crazy trying to figure out how that relates to what he specifically wants for us. But when we pay careful attention to the grand plan that he's laid out in Scripture, then it's going to be easier for us to make sense of what he's doing at any moment of our lives and how we ought to respond then. We're prone to respond to what God is doing for others. We're prone to look at what their yeses and their noes are and then compare our own to them. What we ought to be doing is trying to see what God is doing in the grand scheme of things. Remember, our theme through Genesis, God never rewards sin, but what does he do? He redeems sinners. He redeems sinners. Every yes and every no in your life is to that end. It's to that end. God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would make them into a great nation, but only Jacob actually gets to find out where that's going to take place. God told him here in verse 3, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. There is where I will do it. And in verse 4, he said, I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you back. God was reassuring Jacob that his covenant promises of land and offspring and blessing were still intact. And what's more, God also promised that Joseph would be by Jacob's side when he died. So here's what happened. Jacob doesn't have to choose between offspring and land. God resolved his dilemma. How comforting must these words have been to Jacob? He'd already left the promised land once when he fled from Esau, and just before he left the northern border of Canaan, God appeared to him and promised to be with him and bring him back, right? God kept that promise. And now he was making that promise again as Jacob prepared to leave the southern border of Canaan. Jacob's been all over the promised land. God says, I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep my promise. I will bring you back. Beersheba was the, one of the last watering holes before crossing over into Egypt on the southern border. And, and if you remember, Abraham dug a well there, and he planted a tamarisk tree as a symbol of God's covenant faithfulness, and he called on the name of the Lord there. He worshiped God there. Years later, God appeared to Isaac in Beersheba, and he told him not to be afraid because God would be with him and bless him and multiply his offspring. Isaac also dug a well there, and he built an altar there, and he called on the name of the Lord there. Isaac also worshiped God there. Now picture Jacob there, giving water to his family and to his flocks from the wells of his father 
and his grandfather resting under the shade of the tamarisk tree that his grandfather had planted so many years ago and offering sacrifices to God on the altar that his father built. Each of those men had expressed their trust in the Lord there. Jacob followed in his father's footsteps of faith. And as Jacob did what his father and his grandfather before him had done, God came to him and he said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am. You know, that's what he did to Abraham, right, right as he was getting ready to kill Isaac. Abraham, Abraham, here I am. He's got his attention. Don't be afraid, Jacob. I will keep my promises. Don't be afraid, I am still faithful to keep my promises. How important do you think this moment was for Jacob as he prepared to leave the promised land yet again? How important do you think it, this moment was for the original uh, uh, Israelite audience as they prepared to enter the promised land? How important should this moment be to us as we prepare to enter our eternal home? These are faith-building verses here. Jacob was convinced. He trusted God's word. God was confirming what Joseph had already said in the last couple of chapters, that all this was God's doing and part of his bigger plan to preserve his people. And the author, Moses, was convinced too. Notice in verse 5, he says, the sons of Israel took their father Jacob. Moses uses both of Jacob's names here to convey the, this already but not yet nature of the great nation that God had promised to make them into. Jacob himself is not the nation. He's a man. But God would form his sons and their descendants into the nation of Israel. The sons of Israel took their father Jacob. The use of both names together in verse 5 is an anticipation from the author of God's faithfulness to keep the promise that he made. Now, that we have the, that foundation from these verses. We're going to move on, but I, I won't, I'm not going to read this next section verse by verse because you know my track record with trying to pronounce names and genealogies in Genesis is less than perfect, okay? But I do want to point out a few important things about this before we move just right past it because we also know that genealogies in the Bible are not insignificant, and in verse 6 and 7, the author makes it clear that nobody from Jacob's family stayed back in Canaan. Verse 6 says that Jacob and all his offspring with him came to Egypt. Then for added emphasis, verse 7 says, indeed, all of his offspring. Then the genealogy here in verses 8 through 27 emphasizes that indeed in verse 7. It gives proof that everyone in Jacob's family did, in fact, go to Egypt. Now, one thing that we need to remember about genealogies in the Bible is that they are curated to serve the author's purpose. They're not simply historical records. They're conveying a message. They're driving a point home, like the example that I just mentioned. Everybody went to Egypt. Everybody, right? Each of Jacob's 12 sons is mentioned in this genealogy, but if, if you sit there and you try to count and you try to do the math, the numbers that he ends up with and the numbers that you end up, end up with aren't going to be the same. And it's going to be frustrating. It's going to be confusing unless you understand what he's doing here. What is Moses, the author, communicating? In the Hebrew language, the number seven, 70, those kinds of things 
represents completion or wholeness. It signifies the, the thing that it's describing as the ideal. Verse 27, it says, all those in Jacob's house who came to Egypt were 70 persons. That number 70 is more than just a tally count here. It's emphasizing what we already touched on, first of all, that all of Jacob's family did indeed go to Egypt. It was a whole family. It was a complete group. Nobody was left behind, right? But we've also already seen another genealogy in Genesis where the count reached 70. Remember back in chapter 10? And the list of names that's commonly referred there to as the table of nations. Moses curated that genealogy to show that the whole earth was populated through Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And that list can, uh, uh, constituted the whole of humanity, but it was given in the context of the repopulation of the earth after God had flooded it because there was widespread sin before that. And God flooded it in judgment. And it was also given in the context of the very next story in chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. 10 was the precursor. It showed that everybody spread out. 11 told us how that happened. And what did they do? They were sinful in rebellion against God. They came together as one people to build a name for themselves, and they tried to build this tower up to heaven so that they could replace God. From the beginning, when God created mankind... He blessed his image bearers and he gave them the mandate to fill the earth and to rule over it. They were to serve as his representatives, displaying his glory by reproducing more image bearers and reflecting his character and his nature in the way they ruled and governed the world under his delegated authority. But we know this, the first humans failed at what, at what God had commanded them to do when they sinfully rebelled against God in the garden. And when the earth was repopulated after the flood, what happened? More sinful rebellion resulted in more failure to carry out God's mandate. And throughout Genesis, genealogies have served as transition points that move from one major family to the next, each time narrowing down the family line through which God would fulfill his Genesis 3.15 promise to bring about a serpent crusher from the seed of the woman. The one who would reverse the curse. This promise was reflected in God's covenant with Abraham and then again with Isaac and then again with Jacob when he said that the nations would be blessed through one of their offspring. He's referring to the serpent crusher. And up to this point, each genealogy has, has shown the transition from a covenant patriarch to a son who would receive and carry on the new covenant through his family line. Or the covenant, uh, not the new covenant, but the covenant through his family line. But in this genealogy here, in this genealogy here, in chapter 46, the transition is no longer from a patriarch to a son. It's from a patriarch to many sons. It's from a man to a nation. Just as the 70 nations in chapter 10 represented the sons of Adam through Noah, so now the 70 persons in this genealogy represent the sons of Abraham through Jacob. The children of Israel in God's grand plan of redemption, we're going to constitute a new humanity through which God would restore his original creation, blessing, and mandate. And in the next set of verses, we'll see God begin to set his chosen nation apart. We're going to skip ahead past the genealogy now to chapter 46, verse 28. 
I'm going to read a large chunk here. We're going to go through uh, 47.6. Now Jacob had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to prepare for his arrival at Goshen. When they came to the land of Goshen, Joseph hitched the horses to his chariot and went, and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. Joseph presented himself to him, threw his arms around him, and wept for a long time. Then Israel said to Joseph, I'm ready to die now because I've seen your face and you're still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and his father's family, I will go up to inform Pharaoh, telling him, my brothers and my father's family who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. The men are shepherds. They're also, they also raise livestock. They've brought their flocks and herds and all they have. When Pharaoh dresses you and asks you, what is your occupation? You are to say, your servants, both we and our ancestors, have raised livestock from our youth until now. Then you will be allowed to settle in the land of Goshen, since all shepherds are detestable to Egyptians. So Joseph went and informed Pharaoh, my father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds and all they own, have come from the land of Canaan and are now in the land of Goshen. He took five of his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh asked his brothers, what's your occupation? They said to Pharaoh, your servants, both we and our ancestors, are shepherds. And they said to Pharaoh, we have come to stay in the land for a while because there is no grazing land for your servants' sheep, since the famine in the land of Canaan has been severe. So now please let your servants settle in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, now that your father and brothers have come to you, the land of Egypt is open before you. Settle your father and brothers in the best part of the land. They can live in the land of Goshen. If you know of any capable men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Once again, we see Judah's role in the story becoming more prominent. We'll see that even more so in chapter 49. He earned Jacob's trust by bringing Benjamin home safely like he promised he would. So Judah once again, or, or Judah once had a hand in separating Joseph from Jacob, but now here he had a hand in reuniting them. It was a tender reunion that we're told lasted a long time, but the description of it is condensed into just a couple of sentences because from the author's point of view, the reunion between Jacob and Joseph is secondary to the relocation of the family in uh, to Goshen. That's so important that, uh, that the account of it is mentioned in great detail two times in those verses I just read. So why does the author go to great lengths to emphasize their occupation as shepherds? Like, why not spend all the time on Joseph and Jacob's reunion? It's been 22 years, right? Why is he so adamant about, listen, you need to tell them you're shepherds? He tells us why in the last verse of 46, of chapter 46, verse 34. He says, all shepherds are detestable to Egyptians. Now, chances are not all shepherds everywhere, but foreign shepherds were detestable because it's clear at the end of chapter or of the passage I just read, Pharaoh has livestock. Somebody has to take care of them, right? And because Pharaoh had been so pleased with Joseph's administration over all the food for Egypt, he was more than willing. Like, oh, wow, you have all these brothers? They're probably as good as you are at administrating stuff. Hey, listen, I got some livestock. If you find anybody that's good, capable, let them care for them. Why? Because the Pharaoh knows they'll multiply too. 
He assumed they would be as, as successful as Joseph was. In verse 4 of chapter 47, the brothers also noted that they had come to stay in the land for a while. We don't want to miss that part. In other words, they weren't planning on living there long term, right? Just until the famine subsided, they would live as temporary residents in a foreign land. Again, this is a reminder to the readers that God was going to bring them back to the land of Canaan. God promised that already at the beginning. After confirming their occupation and their plans, Pharaoh joyfully granted them permission to settle in the land of Goshen. Now, why is that significant? What's happening here in all of this? God is doing something. He was keeping his people separate while they remained in Egypt. He was forming his chosen nation inside of a foreign nation. Because shepherds were detestable to Egyptians, guess what? Egyptians weren't going to come in and say, hey, marry our daughters and let us intermarry with your sons. Worship our gods. God in his providence, in his sovereignty, in his care for his people was keeping them as his people so that they would worship him alone and that they would not lose their identity. The covenant would remain intact because God's covenant people would remain intact. But because they were God's covenant people, they would also be a blessing to the nation that was blessing them. You remember God's promise to Abraham from the beginning? I will bless those who bless you. Look at verse 7 of chapter 47. Joseph then brought his father Jacob and presented him to Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many years have you lived? Jacob said to Pharaoh, my pilgrimage has lasted 130 years. My years have been few and hard. And they have not reached the years of my ancestors during their pilgrimages. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh and departed from Pharaoh's presence. Now, normally blessing would pass from the greater, the one with greater status, to the one with lesser status. Take Genesis 1, for example. The very first blessing is from God to humanity. Be fruitful, multiply, right? But twice here it says that Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Here this this old, frail man was blessing the most powerful man in the known world at that time. What's that all about? Who's the greater one here? The author's making it clear that it's not Pharaoh, it's Jacob. In the eyes of God, Jacob is the one. He's the chosen one. He's the one through whom God is carrying on his covenant promises. Jacob then was the mediator of God's blessing to the nations at that point, and Pharaoh was the one that was benefiting of it from it because he had blessed God's people. But Jacob had a different perspective on his own life. He told Pharaoh, my pilgrimage has been 130 years. My years have been few and hard. Now, in our context, that's a long life, right? I don't want to live 130 years. I don't know if you are like, you're trying to break the record or something. Why? Because our life is hard, right? We know what Jacob's talking about here. My years are few and hard. In that context, though, compared with Abraham, who lived 175 years, Isaac, who lived 180 years, Jacob's years were considerably fewer at that point. And we've seen the trend in Genesis. People don't live as long. 900 years, now now 130 We hear 
when we hear Jacob's words in verse 9, my, my years have been few and hard, it, it should transform us into this flashback. It, it should draw our minds along with his, sort of reminiscing over the years that we've seen of his life where he's wrestled with God and with others, struggling to gain blessing for himself. He deceived his own father. He fled from his brother. He never saw his mother again when he left. He battled against his uncle Laban for 20 years, married a bunch of wives, had a bunch of kids, had family strife. He assumed that his favorite son was dead for 22 years. Now he's struggling through a severe famine. His few years have been hard, full of hardship. But we need to see this. They have not been devoid of faith. They've been difficult, but they have not been devoid of faith. While he did wrestle with God, both actually and metaphorically, Jacob also trusted God to keep his covenant promises. Jacob lived his life as a pilgrim, Without a permanent home, just as his father and his grandfather had done before him. Hebrews 11 elaborates on this. It tells us they all died in faith, although they had not received the things that, that were promised. But they saw them from a distance. They greeted them. They welcomed them. They, they believed them. And they confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on this earth. You know why? Because they were seeking a homeland, but they knew it was something far greater than the land of Canaan. They all desired a better place, Hebrews tells us, a heavenly one. Our home is not here. How would you describe your years? Have they been few and hard? Have you also struggled with God and with others at times as you sought out blessing for yourself? Would you, would you describe your own life as a pilgrimage? Are you seeking a better place a heavenly one, or are you trying to find permanent rest and satisfaction in the transient things of this world? Things that rust and wear out. Things that are destroyed and stolen. As God's new covenant people, we're meant to live in this world as foreigners, as temporary residents, as, as a people set apart not walled off, not hidden from the rest of the world, but living in the midst of it as a new humanity recreated in Christ to reflect God's pure and holy nature and his good character and to spread his glory throughout the world through the proclamation of his gospel, this good news of the heart-transforming and life-governing grace of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God himself who took on humanity upon himself and came to the earth, guess what, as a temporary resident. Of anybody that can say, my years have been few and hard, no one can mean them more truthfully than Jesus. His years were few and they were hard. He suffered from birth until death. He had no permanent home, no place to lay his head, but he came to prepare a heavenly one for all of God's people. And he lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father as he relied on the Holy Spirit. He suffered and he died on the cross for sinners and he rose from the dead on the third day in order to bring about God's blessing 
of forgiveness and eternal life to all who rely on him through faith. So the question is, is that what you're doing? Are you relying on Jesus? There's no answer to your hardships, no, 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 no response, no, nothing that will satisfy you apart from him. There's nothing that will bring you ultimate peace and joy, either in the midst of or at the end of your pilgrimage, nothing apart from Christ. So if you're not relying on him, why not repent? Why not believe? Why not confess your need for him? Turn your love and your dependence away from your sins and turn them toward Jesus, trusting in his grace to forgive you once and for all and to grant you an eternal home with him. The grace of God has appeared and there's more grace to come. As God's new humanity in Christ, we've been called to follow his example. We don't just love those who love us, It's easy to be generous toward those who are generous to us, right? But Jesus tells us to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. Paul goes on to tell us to bless those who persecute us. Bless them and do not curse them. Jacob blessed this Pharaoh because this Pharaoh blessed Jacob and his family. But later, Moses would curse a different Pharaoh with plagues because that Pharaoh was a hard-hearted enemy of God's people. Both of those things were part of God's specific plan at those specific times for those specific people to separate the people of Israel from the Egyptians. And both of those things were also part of God's greater plan to bring about the Messiah, the serpent crusher, Jesus Christ, who would rescue his people from their sins and restore his original creation blessing and mandate to them, to us, to us. God's specific plan for an individual or for individual people is always dependent upon his greater plan of redemption. Always. And because he loved us when we were his enemies and we, he rescued us, redeemed us through Christ, reconciled us to himself, God made us his ambassadors of reconciliation. That means that we love those who don't love us even as we plead with them to be reconciled to God through Christ. We have a greater example to follow than Jacob and Moses. We have Jesus. And he's given us all the grace that we need to live as pilgrims in a foreign land, to endure hardship for however many few or, or long, for, our, for however few or, or many days we have. He's given us the grace that we need to love those that we would rather hate. Easier said than done, right? But he's given us the grace to do it. All so that his enemies who deserve his condemnation as we once did can receive his blessing instead like we have received through faith in Jesus Christ. Don't you want that for those that make your life hard? Do you want that for those that make your life hard? We can trust God in the hardships of our lives because we know that he keeps his promises and cares for his people. Look at verse 11. We're going to read another long section here. When Joseph settled his father and brothers in the land of Egypt and gave them, then Joseph settled his father and brothers in the land of Egypt and gave them property in the best part of the land, the land of Ramses, also known as Goshen there as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's family with food for their dependents. 
But there was no food in the entire region, for the famine was very severe. The land of Egypt and the land of Canaan were exhausted by the famine. Joseph collected all the silver to be found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they were purchasing. And he brought the silver to Pharaoh's palace. When the silver from the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan was gone, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die here in front of you? The silver is gone. But Joseph said, Give me your livestock. Since the silver is gone, I will give you food in exchange for your livestock. And so they brought their livestock to Joseph, and he gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the sheep, the herds of cattle, and the donkeys. That year he provided them with food in exchange for all their livestock. When that year was over, they came the next year, and they said to him, We cannot hide from our Lord that the silver is gone and that all our livestock belongs to our Lord. There's nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. Why should we die here in front of you, both us and our land? Buy us and our land in exchange for food. Then we, will, uh, then we with, our, with our land will become Pharaoh's slaves. Give us seed so that we can live and not die, and so that the land won't become desolate. In this way, Joseph acquired all the land of, in Egypt for Pharaoh, because every Egyptian sold his field since the famine was so severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's, and Joseph made the people servants from one end of Egypt to the other. The only land he did not acquire belonged to the priests, for they, they had an allowance from Pharaoh. They ate from their allowance that Pharaoh gave them, therefore they did not sell their land. Joseph said to the people, understand today that I've acquired you and your land for Pharaoh. Here is seed for you, sow it in the land. At harvest you are to give a fifth of it to Pharaoh, and four-fifths of it will be yours as seed for the field and as food for yourselves, your households, and your dependents. You have saved our lives, they said. We have found favor with our Lord and will be Pharaoh's slaves. So, so Joseph made it a law, still in effect today, in the land of Egypt, that a fifth of the produce belongs to Pharaoh. Only the priest's land does not belong to them. Israel settled in the land of Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property in it, and they became fruitful and very numerous. Now, there's a long section. Okay? In the last section, Jacob blessed Pharaoh twice. The bulk of this section tells all about how, then, Pharaoh was blessed. Pharaoh had been generous to Joseph and his family. God had promised to bless those who bless his people. So here, Joseph acquired everything in Egypt for Pharaoh. He started collecting all the silver in the land when people came to buy the food. But notice, notice Joseph's integrity. He didn't keep any of the silver for himself. What does it say? He brought it into Pharaoh's palace, all of it. And when the people needed more food, they came back to Joseph. They didn't have any silver, so they're like, hey, can, let's give us, we'll give you the livestock. Why should we die here in front of you? That, that's a good point, right? Listen, if you're a king, you need people in your kingdom, right? What good is a kingdom if his people starve to death? This is their point they're making. So they didn't have silver, so they gave livestock, but then that ran out. The, the grain, the food that they got, so they came back again. They made the same argument. This time they added an emphasis to it. What good is Pharaoh's kingdom if his people are dead and his land is ruined? If you are a king, two of your most important assets are your people and your land. They make a good point here. Listen, if you don't help us survive, this kingdom's going down. So they offered themselves as indentured servants. They gave their land to Pharaoh in exchange for seed to plant. In fact, the fact that Joseph gave them seed to plant, it seems to indicate that the famine is either almost over or now it's over. 
Because he's not just giving them food to eat, he's actually telling them to go out and, and work the ground again. And even though the people essentially sold themselves and their land to Pharaoh, Joseph's plan gave them a great deal of freedom and independence. His terms here are generous compared to the standard Egyptian practices at that time. Normally, indentured farmers required, were required to give half to two-thirds of their yield to their master. Joseph only required a fifth for Pharaoh. And again, we need to remember the context of the culture of that day. Slavery is not being condoned here, nor is it condoned anywhere else in Scripture. Joseph wasn't exploiting the situation for his own personal gain. He was administrating with wisdom and generosity, not just for Pharaoh's benefit, but for the benefit of the, all of Egypt. And the people themselves, they offered themselves. They didn't see him as, a, as an oppressor. They saw him as a savior. You've saved us, they said. Joseph's own slavery was more harsh and limiting than theirs was. Joseph made the Pharaoh successful and he kept the Egyptians alive. He mediated blessing to the entire nation of Egypt. But note how this section begins and ends. This is actually the important part. Almost identical wording in verses 11 and 27. Joseph settled his family in the best part of Egypt and he gave them property in it. He provided them and all their dependents with food. Jacob and his family didn't have to keep going to Joseph to, and giving them their silver and their livestock and their land and themselves in exchange for food. They actually gained property in the land, and they had plenty to eat. See, God allowed the entire nation of Egypt to survive the famine. He blessed Egypt as a nation, but he took special care of his covenant people. He provided everything for them. In verse 27, uses the name of Israel instead of Jacob. And then it says, they acquired property in Egypt and became fruitful and very numerous. Remember God's promise to go to, to, Jacob, with Egypt, uh, to go with Jacob to Egypt and to make him a great nation there? Verse 27 just told us that God kept his promise. They became fruitful and very numerous. But that language that they became fruitful is also a reminder that God's plan was bigger than the people that he made numerous. It goes beyond Israel. That's the same language that's used back in Genesis 1 when he told Adam and Eve to be fruitful, become very numerous, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So what we should see is by keeping his promise to Jacob, God was keeping his promise to bring the serpent crusher through this nation that he was forming, the nation of Israel. That serpent crusher is Jesus Christ who came to reverse the curse of sin and restore God's original creation blessing and mandate by recreating a new humanity that will become fruitful and very numerous as more and more people trust Jesus by believing the good news of the gospel. This is the plan. This is the large plan of redemption. Jacob was so confident that God would keep his promises that he even made his funeral arrangements based on what God had said. Let's finish this up. Verse 28. Now Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, and his lifespan was 147 years. When the time approached for him to die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If I have found favor with you, put your hand under my thigh and promise me that you will deal with me in a kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt. When I rest with my ancestors, carry me away from Egypt and bury me in their burial place. Je Joseph answered, I will do what you have asked. And Jacob said, Swear to me. So Joseph swore to him, and then Israel bowed in thanks at the head of his bed. Jacob's approaching death is going to be the backdrop for the rest of Genesis. 
And the urgency of his preparation for it is matched here by his confidence in God's word. When God spoke to Israel back at the beginning of chapter 46, he told Jacob, I will I will, I will, I will make you into a great nation in Egypt. I will go down to Egypt with you. I will also bring you back. When God says, I will, it's as good as done. You can stake your life and your death on it. That's what Jacob did. He told Joseph, listen, after I'm dead, don't bury me here. Don't bury me in Egypt because God promised to bring me back to Canaan. Bury me with my father Isaac and my grandfather Abraham, with my ancestors who trusted in God's kindness and faithfulness, who are buried there in the land of promise. Even though Jacob himself would not see the fulfillment of God's promise to give his people the land of Canaan, he believed that God would keep that promise. And so he was so confident that he made Joseph swear an oath to bury him in Canaan. And after Joseph said, okay, I swear, I'll do it, the scene closes with Israel bowing his head in thanks in his bed. Notice the name Israel is used again here in the close of, verse, of chapter 47, just like it was used at the beginning of chapter 46 when God promised to make Jacob into a great nation. It's another cue that Jacob wasn't the only one convinced that God would keep all of his promises. Moses, the author, was too. To live as God's covenant people means that we live in the confidence that God will fulfill all of his promises from the first one to the last one, regardless of how many we see fulfilled in our own lifetime. We trust that God's I wills will become his I haves. And we order our lives and even our deaths around his grand plan of redemption. He has some I wills left for us. Do you know this? I will live with them. They will be my people and I will be their God. I will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Until those I wills become I haves, let's live as pilgrims who are confident in God's promises, looking forward with sure faith to our heavenly home. And, through our, and, and, and though our years may be few and hard on this earth, May they be fruitful as we sow numerous seeds of the gospel in the confidence that God will finish his plan of redemption to bring all of his people into his kingdom from the first one to the last one. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the grace that it reveals to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that every promise finds its fulfillment in him, that in Jesus they are yes and amen. And so we too say yes and amen. Lord, help us to live in the confidence of the grace yet to come as we live in the grace that you've already provided for us. In Jesus' name, amen.